Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this episode of the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark, we have got an entire segment about food trucks, the craze <laughs> that makes me crazy. I'll tell you why it makes me crazy in a bit. We have an interview with Zoe Ajanyo, a Ghanan chef and cookbook writer that is unbelievable and mind-boggling. The interview is, and she might be too. We have our one-minute cooking tip and much more. So let's get started. Segment one. Mark said it right. We're going to talk about food trucks. Oh, they are everywhere. They They're are. ubiquitous. You can't go anywhere without seeing them. But let's start with a bit of their evolution because they're not new. Well, no, I suppose food trucks aren't new. There is the old chuck wagon idea. Of, 1866, invented uh, by Charles Goodnight. The, yeah, where you, you know, you cook the beans and the burgers. Uh, burgers, there wouldn't be burgers. No. Beans and steaks. I don't know. Beans and prairie grass. Beans and more beans. Yeah, over the <laughs> <laughs> Francis Parkman in the mid 19th century wrote a travel log of his journey across the American West and to the Rockies and through a lot of Native American tribes, a lot of indigenous people. It's all his journey out across, um, I don't know, the landscape. He's an American historian. And really what that journey is, to be honest with you, it's 400 pages of diarrhea. That is exactly what that <laughs> he, book is. Th yeah, they were, they were not practicing uh, good hygiene at no. those at those truck wagons. No. Mm. It's really not. It's dysentery from mm. the get-go all the way to the end. Anyway, yes, I suppose it goes back to the chuck wagon. I don't really think that has to do, that should do with the modern food truck, except you can connect it there, because it really starts up in the 20th century. Well, it does. Oscar Mayer rolled out its first portable hot dog cart, the Wiener Mobile, and in 1936. I, I want you to know that I went to grad school for American Lit in the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I have ridden in the Wiener Mobile. Oh, you're such a wiener. I, you're such a wiener. <laughs> I have actually ridden in said Wiener Mobile by Oscar Mayer. But now it's more of an advertising gimmick. I honestly think that the true origin of food trucks are the ding, 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 ice cream truck. Well, they are. I mean, that was in the 50s, good humor with their bells, and now we got... That's Mr. Softy. Exactly. Everybody knows that tune. Yeah, ice cream trucks. Now, of course, you can get anything, anything in a food truck. You can get tacos. You can get crepes well, all over. Gosh, the first time we went to Paris, there were crepe trucks all over Paris. There there were. In fact, I have to tell you that I watched a TikTok video the other day about this guy talking to his boyfriend walking down the street, and he was telling him about, I don't know, something, uh, some trauma in his life or a past relationship or something, and the doodle doo ice cream truck road walked by, and his boyfriend just walked off mid-sentence and didn't even <laughs> let him finish his own story as he walks off to go get to the ice he cream He needed his truck. soft serve. I, I mean, so. Mark and I were in Austin about 15 years ago as, as some of you know mark is a texan and so we spent a lot of time in austin he was living there when we met so we we go back and visit friends and we saw the popularity of food trucks in austin it was crazy it was insane in south austin the food trucks set up camp with picnic tables and the food, it was unlike, though, the food carts we've seen in the streets of New York, weren't uh, they? they? It was crazy. They were down on South Congress, or as they now say, SoCo. If you say SoCo <laughs> to me, I will defriend you in a second. It is South Congress. Give me a freaking break. Um, anyway, uh, yes, they were down on South Congress. There's a whole bit of them there. And I have to tell you that I am food truck resistant. But why? I'll tell you why. why? Well, now let's talk about food trucks for a minute, and then I'll tell you why I'm food truck okay, resistant. So 
these were really like restaurants on wheels. These weren't just, you know, selling falafel and candied nuts. When I was at Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison. When you drove in the Wienermobile. At the same time. I remember there was a falafel cart because, of course, Madison. There was a falafel cart. (laughs) The Tabuli Belt. Yes. There was an entire part of town where the grad students lived that was called the Tabuli Belt. Um, There was a uh, falafel (laughs) cart at the bottom of campus right by State Street where campus dumped out into kind of the downtown area. And, uh, you know, I mean, this was all there was to food carts. Now food carts are fancy. Oh, the food trucks are crazy. But it's so so part of our, who we are now as a culture that Food Network did a whole series on food trucks. And they came up with a set of food truck etiquette rules that I thought were really good and I wanted to share them. So rule number one, be patient when you're at a food truck. The chefs on board, and they are chefs. These aren't just people, you know. The chefs on board are juggling a few hundred orders a day, very limited spaces, hot grills, people crammed in. So don't keep asking where your order is and when it's going to be ready. Um, These chefs know you've been waiting 25 minutes. And yes, at good food trucks, you could wait that long. And you do have to be prepared because you have to be prepared to wait in line. And you'll note that the good food trucks have long lines and you need to be ready for that. And don't forget that you're probably outside and it may be summer or it may be hot or it may be inclement weather. You have to be prepared to be outside. That is part of the whole food truck, dare I say it, experience. And while you're on that line, read the menu because there's nothing worse than you get (laughs) To you finally get up to front. There's one person in front of you after 20 minutes on, and that's when they decide to read the menu. Yeah, and you also have to be flexible with your money. Try to bring small bills. Really, honestly, try to bring small bills. It helps the food truck a great deal. I was driving my mom from Dallas, her home, for 60 years to Missouri, where she's now going to live in an independent facility by my brother, and we stopped at a restaurant in Muskogee, Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where my mother had, and I quote, now this was a restaurant, but she had, and I, this is exactly what she had for lunch. She had scrambled eggs, bacon, fried potatoes, biscuits, gravy, and coconut cream pie. Uh, <laughs> I hope a, that wasn't a very long drive. I was a little afraid for the interior <laughs> of the car, but not, mom's not, well, almost 90. But anyway, wait, here's my story. So, you know, I went up to pay, and I wasn't really thinking what I was doing. I was on this really long drive, this 12-hour drive, you know, and a really long drive, and I was tired. And so the lunch was, I don't know, $17 or something for the two of us. And I just pulled the first bill out of my wallet and handed it to the woman. It was a $100 bill. And Ooh, she missed the got rocks. Carrying $100 bills <laughs> this around. This woman in Muskogee, she looked at me, and she was like, seriously, <laughs> seriously, a $100 bill. So I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And so, you know, I found a couple tens and gave <laughs> <laughs> sure. So it, the same thing with a food truck. Don't roll off the big bills. It's not polite. Try to be smaller in the amount of bills that you leave. Or better yet, of course, pay with your phone, pay with a credit card, yep. etc. And the last thing, be clean. It's not just for the food truck. It's for everybody else eating there. You know, you don't have the luxury of a busboy at the food truck. Your mother's not there to clean up after you, un- unless she is. And <laughs> yeah, most trucks My have... My 90-year-old mother won't clean up and after me. Most trucks have trash cans and recycling bins so use them if you empty your soda bottles and just leave them lying around Ugh. the grass and you leave a cupcake Ugh. wrapper blowing in the wind Ugh. i will find you yeah i will find yeah, you yeah so now we have actually come full circle back to my problem with food trucks here's my problem with food trucks is that i feel i don't have a problem how do i say this i don't have a problem with the trucks i have a problem with the patrons at the trucks <laughs> and if i am going to pay 
$25 for a hamburger to stand in the heat and eat said hamburger. I cannot eat said hamburger surrounded by trash. It just makes mm-hmm. me insane inside. I, I, there's nothing wrong with the hamburger. There's nothing wrong with the tamales off the food truck. It's often unbelievably delicious food. It is often more innovative than a restaurant, which has to be very careful about food, um, you know, about what they serve based on what customers want. Food trucks can often be more fleet and more experimental. But at the same time, oh my gosh, I can't eat the $25 burger surrounded by junk. I just can't do it. So please clean up for the likes of me. And remember, there are other people around you. When did we forget this, that there are other people in this world besides ourselves? So if you do that, Mark will start eating at food trucks and I will have a broader culinary experience. Exactly. There are some really interesting food trucks. So why don't you say something? Oh yeah, here's some really fun ones we know about. Maximus Minimus, which is based in Seattle. This giant mobile steel pig looks like something out of Angry Birds meets Mad Max. Okay, here's what's so funny is by saying angry birds you have dated yourself and i realized it's that, still going no i realized that angry birds is oh, still around but I, who can believe that something that came out that late in 2005 already dates you okay anyway, so what go you on. go there for is pulled pork sandwiches when it's parked the pig wears sunglasses naturally and if you want to know where <laughs> it's going to be just go to maximusminimus.com and you can it's find maximus out dash minimus maximus dash minimus dash minimus.com and we should give a shout out to sweet jenny's cupcake shop in west hampton new york there are cupcake trucks everywhere it's actually a fairly common thing but this one is actually a giant cupcake right? <laughs> on wheels it's a giant cupcake on wheel it's a truck covered in a pink wrapper the, rubber, the roof is buried under vanilla frosting and sprinkles and the cupcakes are pretty fine so sweet jenny's cupcake shop in west hampton new york look for their cupcake truck and if you're in the atlanta area look for the good food truck nice simple name i like it sounds simple enough it has really good food but not just on a truck they also use tricycles and rickshaws to carry wow. around their savory waffle cones curries Chutney grilled cheeses and Southern comfort food. Wow, I so want a tricycle to deliver my food. I want a food tricycle. It's the newest thing, the good good food truck in Atlanta. So that's our bit about food trucks. And up next, our one-minute cooking tip in segment two. Hey, if you're measuring sticky stuff like corn syrup, it never does come out of the measuring cup, right? It gets stuck, molasses. So... Here's a quick tip. Spray it with nonstick spray, then pour in your sticky stuff, and everything else will come out. And if your recipe includes oil, you skip the spray, measure the oil first, that'll coat the inside of the measuring cup, then you can put in the corn syrup yeah, and maple there's syrup. there's nothing as irritating as running that rubber spoon around and around and around and around and around the inside of the stupid sticky stuff to try to get it out of the cup. And this would all be solved... If we in the United States simply adopted scales in the kitchen, but I'm not going to get off on that tear again. Uh, if I could only get rid of the stupid measuring cups and go to scales, I would be a happy camper. But I'm a better happy camper with segment three. Before we get to the next segment, I'm going to ask you to go to Facebook and our group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Join the group. Join the conversation. Everybody's there. We're having lots of fun. We share recipes. We share photos. We even ask you, what would you like us to talk about on the podcast? We take ideas. We love speaking to you there. Cooking with Bruce and Mark on Facebook. 
Up next, Bruce's interview with Ghanan chef Zoe Ajanyo. Today I'm talking to Zoe Ajanyo. She is the founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, the website, the book, the industry. <laughs> she has spent the last 10 years bringing the flavors and recipes of West Africa to Europe and the US through supper clubs, catering her own restaurant and her amazing cookbook now coming out in the US, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much. In your book, you talk about new African cuisine. How would you describe that to an American audience? So I should really have said new African cuisines, really. There should be an S on the end there because it's almost like that terrible shorthand people have of still referencing Africa like a country instead of a continent. So my bad on that one, but I should have put an S there. But really, one of the things I'm very passionate about is profiling all of Africa's amazing cuisines and all of the people behind it. And there is somewhat of a, a movement, um, a surge, if you like, in African chefs from Africa, both in the continent, on the continent and in the diaspora, who, for want of a, a less clumsy language, I guess, are, are bringing our foods into onto an international stage. Like the, the, the standmaster used to say on the first edition, traditional recipes remixed for the modern kitchen. And that's how I think about new African cuisines. It's like repositioning our foods, uh, replatforming it, and um, showing off the amazing flavors of and ingredients and that traditional taste, but with this new presentation, with this new kind of, I want to say joie de vivre, but it makes me sound so maybe it shouldn't but you know what I mean this is this lovely beautiful new approach to to cooking in Africa that I want people to have an understanding of and I'm hoping that this book serves as a bit of a gateway to get there you were brought up in the UK with an Irish mom mm -hmm. and a Ghanaian father yeah. and it was his West African food that captured your spirit wasn't that true absolutely yeah so for context it was you know um, or a Irish Ghanaian heritage is an interesting one. Let's just say that. Um, but from a practical point of view, like when I was a kid, you know, we we're a working class family, a very small nuclear family, and I didn't have a lot of Ghanaian family in. Uh, I didn't have any really in London in the UK. But I was going very frequently to Ireland because it's a short hop over that beautiful little <laughs> Irish sea. And um, did I say beautiful? I meant rough. <laughs> <laughs> and cold no but I spent a lot of time as a child in Ireland so I was very very familiar with that side of my heritage and what Irishness was and that like and there was this big gap in my understanding when it came to Ghanaian culture and my dad was very much in and out of my childhood for various reasons but whenever he was present it was always with food and for him that food, things like, you know, fermented maize dough, which we call kenke, which is very similar to tamale, um, you know, smoked fishes like tilapia, which I know is very common in the States, but wasn't in the UK at the time. Uh, condiments like shito, which is a, a hot pepper sauce condiment made with smoked crayfish. Anyway, all of these amazing, very, very different textures, flavors um, and smells. And he would cook that food in this kind of silo, like he was... It was a private moment of him going home uh, through cooking to Ghana. And I caught on to that from a very, very young age. And also my dad was like, um, he still is a very laconic man, more so now that, you know, he's, he's, 
he developed schizophrenia, but um, he was he never spoke very much. And so cooking or watching him cook was like a way, I guess, to be with or next to him. And learning about the food and the flavours just became something I latched onto as my own kind of gateway to Ghana, my own way to go home to that food and have a connection with it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why. Because people often say, well, why not Zoe's Irish kitchen? And it's like, well, this, this is the reason. Peanut sauce is really a staple in West African cuisine. Many Americans know peanut sauce, but they know it from Thai food. Yeah. Can you describe the difference between the peanut sauce that you grew up eating and now that you're creating versus what Americans might be familiar with? Peanuts grow like uh, weeds, or, you know, and avocados actually, they just grow everywhere. They're very, very, very common. So they come up as garnishes, they come up as ingredients. So peanut butter is very, very common staple. Anyway, this dish, groundnut soup, also ubiquitous across West Africa because Senegal has their version, Nigeria has a version, everybody has a version of this. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I love this dish is because it's A, it's so simple to make. I mean, I was making it when I was a kid. It's, <laughs> you know, you just put it all in a pot and let it melt together. Um, and it's like, it's beautiful. In our house, most commonly, it was like bone in... Um, mutton or lamb or you know those cheaper cuts with all that big marrow flavor and the gelatinous flavor um, and then you just add the the count like the the trio that I always say for Ghana is ginger onion and pepper um, so you have that in there then you have like a chale sauce which is basically like for Nigerians they might call that atadindin it's like a spiced uh, peppery tomato uh, almost like a passata and then a hell of a lot of peanuts. Now, it depends on where you are, whose house is going to make it. But you could like crush the peanuts up and make it like a broth yourself. Or you could crush the peanuts yourself and make a peanut butter yourself. Or you can just get a big fat jar of peanut butter, which is what I did as a kid. <laughs> and spoon it in, label it in and let it all melt together. And you have this beautiful, sweet, spicy, piquant complexity of flavour that is literally tastes like you're being hugged and wrapped in a blanket of love and affection and care uh, and that's why I love that dish so much so how does it differ to like a Thai satay for example well I think um, you know my experience of traveling in Thailand the satay is um, much it's, it's usually very thin um, it, it's much thinner and a little bit I want to say silkier there's not the same depth as our, our version of flavour and maybe not as quite as robust. Um, nothing against Thai peanut sauce because I absolutely love it and it is delicious. Um, but yeah, I think there's just a little bit more robustness and depth to, to the West African groundnut sauce. I want to go back to the chale sauce that you mentioned. You write in the book that that's something your dad made all the time and it went into everything exactly yeah so tell, you said it was a like a tomatoes and chilies and so there was an ingredient that was a base of a lot of stews and a lot of sauces so yeah chale sauce starts with my dad because um it was this combination of peppers onion ginger uh, and tomato puree blended together and it seemed to be the base of this basically anything and you know because it's such a simple easy collection of ingredients that nobody could find intimidating it's like oh that has to go in the book it's like this kind of background and also it just means that if you know that that's the base of everything you're making the rest of the recipes will be less intimidating because it's just a question of adding 
adding to, you know. In England, I say babe all the time. It's like, hey, babe, hey, mate, hey, friend. Um, and chale is that kind of word. But when I was a child, my dad's name is Charles. and He used to be called Charlie by his friends. But I was never very keen on the reduction of his very fine fancy name being reduced to Charlie and people would call him sometimes from Ghana and they'd say hey Charlie and I always thought that they were saying Charlie I mean Charlie (laughs) actually they were just saying you know what's up mate what's up friends so anyway I decided to call it Charlie Sauce as this like very friendly introduction to how easy this can be basically so that's why it's called Charlie Sauce that's why it's in there (laughs) There's probably Ghanaians in Ghana screaming at me because it may have its own, you know, traditional Ewe or fancy name that I'm not aware of. But in my research, when I was first writing the book, I couldn't find any, you know, name for that particular combination of ingredients. But yeah, chale sauce is beautifully simple. And I use it all the time outside of, um, you know, Ghanaian cooking as well. You know, my wife, Sarah, is Italian Jewish, so... We make suya meatballs, for example, and use the chale sauce as the passata or make a lasagna with it or a masaka or, you know, all sorts of things. You have this quest to globalize West African flavors and Ghanaian food. And you say in the book yeah. that you want to see jollof as readily available and accessible as curry. So most Americans know what curry is. And I'm saying most because... You know, not everybody. I live in very rural New England, and I know that there are some people up here who don't know what curry is. But what's jollof? Jollof is a a one-pot rice dish. It's super, super. In fact, it's like the most famous export from West Africa at this point, I think, when it comes to food. It derives from the Wolof tribe. That's W-O-L-L-O-F in Senegal. But it has been adopted by all the West African countries And there has been this huge comedy fight between Nigeria and Ghana for the last, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years about who cooks the best jollof. But it starts in Senegal and it's this really, really simple one pot rice dish. You know, it's about making a beautiful, turning that chale sauce into a jollof sauce by adding the seasonings I mentioned in the book. And then you might add some protein, like a lot of people add either chicken or goat or fish or in my family, surf and turf happens quite regularly. And then you just cook the rice into it. It's almost like uh, I think of it as the mother of jambalaya or the mother of gumbo, you know. So it's just this beautiful steaming spiced um, rice dish and it's gorgeous. I mean, jollof is a beautiful representation of our our cuisine, but there is a lot more to it than that, you know. Um, But America, if you need some help with jollof, I'm here for you. (laughs) American cuisine is not necessarily known for its heat. Um, Americans don't in general love spicy food. So what would you say to a new audience for your book and a new audience for this kind of food who might be afraid of too many chilies? Well, let me start by saying not all West African food is hot. Like heat profile isn't um, ubiquitously the case. There are some things like light soup. There are some dishes that are specifically made to be hot, like hot pepper soup. (laughs) But um, for me, heat, when it comes to spices, is a seasoning. Spices are a seasoning, and you should use it to your palate, the way you use salt or black pepper or any other kind of seasoning. Uh, like, the heat part of it isn't the most important part of the dish, you know, um, unless, as I say, 
you know, you're making something specifically that is a hot food, like hot pepper soup. You know, Zoe's Garner Kitchen was never meant to be this kind of didactic Bible of this is Ghanaian food and this is how you must cook it. It's very much my interpretation of how my dad cooked when I grew up, what I'd learned from my trips to Ghana um, and from all of the amazing women, my aunties and various markets that sort of taught me on the way up. Each Ghanaian cook, each Ghanaian household will have their own versions of everything, right? There is no definitive, this is it. But as a cook and as a chef, heat for me is something of a seasoning and you should use it as such really so be guided by your own palate and what you like heat is a seasoning don't be scared and also heat is a something you can build up a tolerance to over time and I tend to as well in many of the recipes use one more than one type of heat because they do different things and when you combine them I try to make it so that all of the heat rises slowly you know so it's never overpowering the palate it's always a warmth that goes down to the belly and comes right back up to kiss you <laughs> before your next mouthful I I bought some of your suya seasoning powder from your website and Zoe's gone to kitchen and it does just that. There's a heat in it that rises slowly. It's not overpowering. In fact, I added a little more heat to it because I wanted hotter the second time I used it. It's a peanut base. It's spectacular. What I did, I rubbed it on lamb shanks and then smoked them. And then I rubbed them on lamb chops and grilled them. What is your favorite way to use suya? Oh my God, all of those ways are great, yeah. <laughs> And I should say that the, the version currently in on for sale in our shop is is a slightly milder one because I'm going to introduce a hot and an extra hot because I understand as well that you need to have sometimes and you know I probably get some criticism for that but you know in the diaspora but sometimes you need to give people a, an entry point you know just to get used to the combination of flavors um, and suya is traditionally a hot thing you know. It can be very, very hot. And so, but again, it varies from chef to chef. It varies from, you know, um, but I love all the things you've just described. Yeah, anything that's getting grilled or barbecued or going near fire is perfect for suya. Um, it has that combination of smokiness, uh, the sweetness from the peanuts, but also, um, you know, some punch in there from the different types of heat involved. So, yeah, it's anything for the barbecue, anything for the grill, I even use it on um, potatoes. You know, sometimes you just want to spice up a Sunday roast and just like toss a little bit of suya with some olive oil on the potatoes, get a nice crunchy spiced potato going on. Here's the thing with it as well. It's like outside of your traditional air quotes uses for these things, I really want to encourage people to play with the ingredients and flavors because there's no reason why um, suya or jollof seasoning or kelly seasoning couldn't be a staple in your cupboard the same way that Old Bay is or Creole seasoning or Chinese five spice or any of those things because people put those in all manner of dishes outside of their original intended use, right? So for me, it's just about helping people have fun with flavor and introduce some notes and some ingredients and some flavors that can get people excited about their everyday cooking again as well, especially after a pandemic, right? You know, it got boring. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I think people are ready to like have a bit more, have easy ways to have more interesting food. And that's, you know, that's just a, a very short, small sample of ways to do that. It's like just spice up your life a little bit. What I take away from the book is so much of that um, joy 
of cooking, joy of eating, expanding what you're doing, trying new things. And I love that you add so much more to the experience and even just food. You have Spotify playlists you've put together of African music to cook by, African music to eat by, play during your dinner parties. That is just, that's a joy for me. <laughs> Thank you. I was inspired to do that by Brian Terry's Afro Vegan. And also, you know, food is this amazing leveler. You can bring lots of different people around a table. And one of the biggest joys of my career was those early days, the supper clubs bringing like 60 strangers into a room and then, you know, putting on the music, dressing the place in African fabric, African print, um, and serving up this, you know, West African food and having everybody share this experience together and to use that food as an introduction to the culture so that people would find, would be less othering of it, you know, and more curious about it. So I hope that the book does that still today. But um, yeah, Bryant's book, Afro Vegan, had this thread of um i think he had a track per recipe and i was like wow that's such a cool idea um i thought i'm not gonna go that far because it's very time consuming <laughs> but i already had as always gone a kitchen playlist for the supper clubs and the events i was doing so i just um you know made a short version for the book to get you in the spirit and then to eat too so that people who are eating with can participate in that wider aspect of the culture as well zoe you've got a podcast as well tell me about that oh thank you for asking <laughs> Needs all the plugs it can get. Uh, my podcast is called Cooking Up Consciousness. And it's me talking to amazing humans about their um, experience of coming to be where they are in their careers, coming to be where they are to be in their humanness. You know, it's about the journey to being and becoming, really. And I'm hoping that it reaches people to inspire them to, to live their best lives and to do what they're passionate about and to not give up um so you can find that on any podcast platform by googling cooking up consciousness and then um i'm putting together an anthology of black and bipoc writers on the politics of food which is going to be crowdfunded it's launching on september the 1st so i would love people to check out that platform the working title is called serving up but it's very much centered around yeah, the politics of food and people's experience of the industry as it is now. Um, and you know, what are the limits on our voices? What are the limits on our culture through the lens of media and publishing at the moment? Um, and just giving them a platform to talk about it, but also celebrating the beautiful, beautiful writing that's coming from these communities, from these uh, voices that just don't get platformed enough, really. So yeah, it's an anthology of... Uh, writing on the politics of food and culture and race and identity as it pertains to food. I am in awe of the synergy you've created between your book and your business, Zoe's Gone a Kitchen. People can buy the spices, their spice blends, they can explore some ingredients they may never have seen before. The book, Zoe's Gone a Kitchen, coming out in the US. Zoe, thank you for sharing your story and outrageously delicious flavors, spices and recipes with us. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. It's been a real pleasure. Grateful for the opportunity to talk about my food and my book and lots of love to you. Back at you. Thanks, Bruce. That was a great interview with Zoe. I wholeheartedly endorse the Suya Spice Rub. It was utterly delicious. Look for her book. Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. 
And you, Mark, are going to be getting a lot of food out of that because I love Zoe and I love this book. I cannot wait. So up next, segment for what's making us happy in food this week. What is making you happy in food this week? Pork belly. And I love pork (laughs) belly. So here, and I'm not talking about bacon. Your bacon is made of pork belly. And so many U.S. citizens do not understand what pork belly is. It's just not something you can normally get. You get bacon, but just unsmoked, uncured pork belly. I know the Whole Foods near us has it. And it any good Asian market worth their salt will have it. And you can get it sliced, you can get it slabbed, and there is so much you can do with pork belly. Mm. You can make crispy skin pork belly by going to our YouTube channel and looking for my recipe doing that. You can make twice cooked pork belly where you boil the slab and then you thinly slice it and you stir fry it with fermented chilies and all sorts of other things. You need to Google recipes for pork belly. You need to find pork belly, and you need to eat some more pork belly. Okay, what's making me happy in food this week are lobster rolls. Lobster <laughs> rolls are the best. What's an old trafe? What's making us happy this oh, week? Oh, if you don't know about lobster rolls, we are we're all trafe, um, and that only uh, only about ten percent of our audience got that <laughs> reference right there. But okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> lobster, Look it up. <laughs> lobster rolls are so delicious. If you don't know, if you're not from New England, it's essentially a New England hot dog bun, which is different than the regular hot dog bun because it's flat on the bottom rather than rounded on the bottom. It's packed with lobster and mayonnaise, sometimes sometimes melted butter. And I here's the deal. When I was in Dallas helping my mom after my dad's death, we started ordering lobster rolls from Dockside Restaurant, and we had them, and they were so delicious. So a shout-out to Dockside in Dallas, Texas. You can get it on Uber Eats. You can get it delivered right to your door. Their lobster rolls are stuffed to the top and delicious, and Dallas is a long way from Maine and a long way from New Hampshire and a long way from Connecticut, and yet they were fabulous lobster rolls or compared to New England where we live because a hot dog bun Stuffed with lobster and mayonnaise is one of the finest things you can imagine. Mm. Well, that's it. That's our episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Oh, my God. Fabulous West African food. We had lobster rolls. <laughs> we had pork belly. Oh, food trucks. So fabulous. Food trucks that look like cupcakes, apparently. <laughs> wow, so and pigs. For more, for more episodes, don't miss a single one. Subscribe to our podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you back next week on another full show episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.